Hey, Mike. Hello, Colin. Welcome to an episode of Divergent Opinions. I legitimately forget what number it is. 15? 15. 15. Woo! It's a big number. It's a big number indeed. It's uh, something divided by something else. Actually, I don't think it is. <laughs> wow. No, I mean, it's like 30 divided by 2. Oh. I thought you were saying it was divisible by something else. No, it is in fact a prime. No, 5. Three. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we're good at math. This is why we write software. Yeah. Uh, wow. So what's new? So how's your week? Week's been good. Doing a lot of exciting stuff here in uh, Minnesota. Yeah? Yeah, a lot of fun software development going down. Cool. And uh, it's all for the better. Good, good. How about you? What's new? Hmm, what is new? Um, I am starting to realize how little math I've taken in my life. Yeah. Related to this, our <laughs> opener. Right. Doing the whole, uh, I'm now five lessons into my artificial intelligence class. And they're getting into linear algebra. Oof. And, oh, we had Bayesian probability graphs last week where they just sort of assumed you knew what all that was. It was good. Yeah, linear algebra and differential equations is about where I fell off the the math wagon, sort of uh, second or third year of computer science. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. I've got a... uh, Eigenvectors and... Oh, I need to learn eigenvectors. Yeah. Better. Yeah. I need to learn... I mean, I use them, but I need to know what they actually do. Right. And, you know, my issue was always just once we started getting to that point in math, when it stopped being like visualizable that's where i just fell apart yeah the nice thing is the teaching the the instructors for this class are really horrible yeah which is good they do this they always are yeah where are you gonna find uh you know native english speakers who understand this math well strom i mean he you know they're not they're native english speakers i think but the problem is you know they're not really they're I think they're researchers more than professors. Sure. Uh, or more than educators, I guess. Um, and so they do, well, they've got, one of them has this great teaching style where he uh, he asks the question and makes you figure it out before he tells you about it. Uh-huh. So he pre-quizzes you like, so let's just imagine you need to do this. How would you do that? And then they give you like a non-passable sort of set of fields you have to enter in your YouTube video. And then it goes, no, that's not correct. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, some of these questions I'll have like four pages of computations. And then they'll be like, nope, actually it's different. And then they go on to explain why. And then you're like, oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's good times. But it sounds interesting. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. It'll be fun to see... Uh, what comes of it I don't know when I will actually put this to use next next driving car I make will probably be much better (laughs) cool you know well when we get to your chatter we can maybe talk about that a little bit more my self-driving car no your your future plans for artificial intelligence and 
how it will destroy you. Okay. But I don't want to ruin the surprise. Yeah, I'm going to be surprised too. Has the industry done anything exciting lately? Got an iPhone 4S. That's about it. Yeah. We talked about that last week. Yeah, I think we did. I don't know. I mean, it feels like things have been really busy out in the world, but at the same time, I don't feel like there's anything that I'm going nuts to jump on. Yeah, I haven't. uh, What has come out? I mean, you've got a couple links here that you called. I guess the big one is the Lytro. Yeah, the Lytro, which I think we've talked about a little bit in the past. Um, They're now shipping products or near shipping products. Um, Lytro are the people who have developed this infinite focus camera or this refocusable camera, which is that you can shoot a photo and then after the fact decide where you want the focus point to fall and it actually um, is able to re-output the photo with that focus set um, because it's using this sort of micro lens system where it captures enough different images at different focal depths um, to make it effectively infinite once it's gone through their fancy software and everything. Right, so it creates an image which is sort of a bigger pattern of different focal lengths instead of different colors and then later they can rebuild any one of those images at a lower resolution. Yep. And it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff coming out of it. I mean, some of the sample photos people are taking, it's, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely got that sort of magic feel to it because you can go into software and say like, I want that in focus. I want that in focus. And it, and it just does it. Um, I, the I, one thing I haven't seen, I don't, do you know, is there a way to put everything in focus? I mean, I understand I that for so, a yeah. tech demo, it makes sense that you would want to, have a really shallow depth of field and then move it around. Right. I thought there was. I thought I actually had seen that demoed, but I guess I'm not 100% certain. I, I, I could see how you would automatically compute that later. But. Um, I've just, you know, ever since they announced that they were building their own hardware, I've been sort of surprised at the idea that, one, they would build their own hardware, and, two, they've chosen to build a very unconventional camera because this... Um, you know, to use a quote that uh, has been getting some play recently um, if, that, that came from Steve Jobs talking about talking to the Dropbox people, um, you've got a feature, not a product. And I kind of feel like that's where this, this technology lies and that I'm not sure how many people are going to go out and buy a camera specifically to solve this problem besides as a gimmick. Um, and then they've done a, a strange form factor. I think it's an interesting looking device, but I don't think I'd necessarily want to take a lot of photos with it. Um, to sort of wrap up the the camera in this long cubed or you know rectangular tube type design um, with a very small screen um, and some limited battery life and limited storage and other things. I, I just you know, it is a weird form factor. The industrial design on it's really strange. I, I I'm just you know I, I maybe they they talked to the I'm sure they talked to camera manufacturers and just decided they needed to go it alone and maybe their long term plan is to get bought. Um, obviously I'm sure they've got lots of patents on this, but uh, yeah it's uh, it's strange because again I just I mean yeah having stuff in focus is a bit of an issue, but I think especially because they're targeting it as a consumer camera, I think in part because of the resolution, it's relatively low resolution. Um, you know, 
consumer cameras don't really have that much issue, I think, with focal issues because they're generally, you know, very deep focus because they're very small sensors and very small apertures. Right. Um, you know, like I can see this technology being really useful to pros on a DSLR if it was shooting, you know, enough, you know, high enough resolution to make that meaningful. But of course, the lenses make that pretty challenging as well. So, right. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it seems like a fun toy, but I can't imagine it getting that much traction. Right. So, I mean, again, you know, I'm sure they'll find people who are interested in it and i'm sure people will do cool things with it you know i'm sure we'll see all kinds of neat vimeo videos uh thrown together of i don't know all kinds of crazy vocal shifting and yeah do you know how is the um so basically they i mean they're just occluding different they're just putting a little micro lens on different elements right so there's no speed Right, they don't have to read them out in a particular order or something, or like change things as they read stuff out. I think they so capture it nothing, all. So there's nothing besides their firmware that's keeping it from doing video. Right. That would be. I mean, that I think that would be an interesting. I think that'd be a more interesting market for this. Yeah, definitely. Because but. then you can do. I mean, that's when you really want to be able to f- move the focus around. And that's where it becomes hard to stay in focus. I mean, right, definitely. And I think it's you know it's always cool to see some of these um, theoretical lenses hit the market because we see a lot of them coming out of research projects. And you know, in terms of the cameras we actually use, the lenses are still very traditional. Um, mm-hmm. But when you look at you know, and this has been described, discussed lots of places, the the limiting factor on phone thickness at this point is the depth of the optics for the cameras. Um, and that's why all the new sort of the the new droid razor uh, product from Motorola, for example, has a big lump at the top to fit the camera in because it needs to be a certain depth in order to be able to focus on the the sensor. Right. Um, right. So it'd be, you know, I, I think it's exciting to see this come to market, and I hope we'll see some of these other um, sort of more crazy, non-traditional optical solutions start to, you know, actually hit the market now as well. Right, because what's cool about this is if you if you once you've developed the technology to build micro lens arrays and attach them directly to CCDs, then you don't actually need a lens anymore. Right, is my understanding. Well, is that true? No, I guess that's not true. You still well, need at least on the... one lens because otherwise every element in your CCD see the whole gets field the of view. same image. Yeah. yeah, so you need something to split the field of view out. Yeah. But still, you can make a significantly one cheaper lens array and two more compact. Yeah. So hopefully, so, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know. I'm not going to buy one. No, neither am I. But I'll... If, if they added video, I might actually, because then you don't need much resolution. Then I mean, if you're going to put something up on YouTube, right. you don't need much resolution. And being able to do rack focuses and stuff in post would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I, you know, it's also strange because it's a relatively small sensor and you know, relatively you know short in terms of zoom lens. I guess it's actually a decent zoom, but it's like I wonder how much depth of field you really get out of it um, if you're not, you know. Well, I suspect they're artificially increasing the depth yeah, of field. That's probably accurate. Which is just as cool. Yeah. Why not? Okay. I mean, well, that's good because I don't find uh, 
crazy rack focus DSLR video is annoying, and so I certainly won't find uh, things like this annoying. Hey, it's cool as long as they actually hit their focus. Yeah, but they never hit their focus. Like, okay, so well, they, that's, I guess the that's point why is they this would. is great. Yeah. Okay, fine, fine. See, I'm all for this. All right. we, this is like this is this will be the, the the killer app is killing off DSLR racks. <sighs> Hurrah! There's money in that. Yeah. There's innovation. That's a that's a game changer. All right. Uh, I bought a book thinking that it was going to be good. What book was it? Uh, it's called, um, I don't know, it's on the toilet. It's the only place I can bring myself to read it. It's called like the Innovator's Cookbook. Mm, sounds awful. No, somebody tricked me. It was I was reading Brain Pickens, the blog. Uh-huh. They always have good recommendations for books. And it was, it's by the guy who does the good you know, what's the Stephen Levy? No, he's someone else. Yeah. It's the guy who did the book about how everybody invents things at the same time that just came out recently. Don't know. About how, like, a bunch of people invented the light bulb all at the same time and a bunch of, you know, basically ideas. Sure. Sort of have their moment. And Malcolm eat. Gladwell? No, it's somebody like. It was probably Malcolm Gladwell. It's, it's the same idea, but less hair. Um, but anyways, he um, that book's supposed to be really good, and this one I thought was written by the same guy, even though I should have known because it came out very shortly after. But it turns out he wrote the foreword and edited it or something, and then he slapped his name really big across the front. Ah, uh, sure. But it's basically like you know a bunch of essays targeted at you know business school douche tards yeah lots of innovation sure winning friends influencing people it's all about like being nimble and innovative and Mm. how to manage creativity in your in your ecosystem no it's bad why did I bring that up I don't know I think I, I think I went into the the speak for a second there okay um you know the only other things that were really interesting to me this week um was the new panasonic hpx 250 which i guess isn't really that interesting to me except symbolically um this is the first small sort of um prosumer style avc intra camera that shoots 10-bit 422 um which I think is interesting. You know, we've talked, I think, on a podcast a while back about whether, you know, 422 was as meaningful anymore because keying tools have gotten so much better and, you know, the post-production workflows have gotten so much better. Um, and, you know, same for 10-bit, but at the same time, you know, getting it in a form factor that where you, you don't have real trade-offs. You know, this is a sort of Z1U, um, whatever, NX5 style form factor. Right. So, um, you know, you're just getting much, much better quality than AVC HD. You know, if nothing else, you're getting an interframe codec. But uh, right. Yeah, I mean, interframe is is interesting. I'm what I'm really curious about is why why we even make these arbitrary decisions ahead of time now, like, huh? So. 
So the CCD is capturing, one would assume, 444, 10-bit or 16-bit. Yeah. You know, by the you know at the back end of the A to D conversion. Right. I mean, there's there's no such thing as a you know a Bayer pattern that's weighted in such a way that you don't get RGB out of it. Right. So, so why do we throw away all this information before we hand it to a you know an H two six four encoder, which is you know designed very well to throw away information? based not on arbitrary factors, but like based on qualitative factors. I think it's, I mean, historically it's been a bandwidth issue and a processing capacity issue just in terms of the things that they do before that processing step, like, you know, gamma adjustments and all the other things that are happening in the camera to the image. Um, I have to assume they've consolidated the firmware, you know, the, the sort of board layout enough at this point that there's like one chip. Yeah, but Isn't if, there? if you can make that chip half as powerful and I guess you know save twenty bucks a unit, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I I, I agree. It's sort of surprising that um, the, the cam- more cameras haven't come up with something more like a raw mode. Um, but I think that you know, aside from some of the sort of more modern cameras like the Red, you know, most of these follow a design that dates back. 20 years in terms of the signal path um yeah. and so there's there's not been a lot of innovation in that space um there's also been a move i think to you know a lot more gets packed onto especially with cmos a lot more gets packed into the cmos package and so they have less control over exactly what they get out of that and so the, that's there, there are true. times when they're actually getting out yeah sort of a pre-process it's already 422 probably yeah, yeah. Um, so is that i mean hmm and again, that you know, part of that is you know physics limitations and other things in terms of the way they read out a CMOS and the voltages they've got, and you know the way they have to stack the the A to Ds. Um, I don't know, like you can't have an external A to D on a CMOS, right? But I mean, they have to, but they're A to Ding into the Bayer pattern and then debayering into whatever else, right? So when you're dropping half your chroma, that's at the that's at the debayer level. Or after the debayer level. Yeah, I think it's probably after. I, w- I would think they debayer to RGB. Mm, or, I think um, you, can, you can debayer directly to YUV. I mean, it's yeah. it's matrix math. You can multiply the two matrices together and do it once instead of twice. Yeah. But I don't know. I just don't get why we don't. It seems like it wouldn't be that cost prohibitive to just go all the way. Well, four four four, and then just you know let your let your encoder toss stuff as it sees fit. Yeah, I don't Does know. Does anyone do that right now? I don't think so. I, I haven't seen anyone. I mean, everybody who uses is either it. like four 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 uncompressed or right. or some sort of subsampling squished a bunch more. Yeah, I haven't seen anyone doing like H two sixty four on a more raw feed like that. I don't. I mean, it seems like something that the those chips would be very good at. Yeah, I think it's probably just a trade-off that you know the limiting factor at that point is probably not on the storage side, and so it's just as easy and and much more beneficial to your workflow to go to ProRes or something, and you know, go to compact flashcards. Right. I don't know. I mean, I think you could probably target four 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 at the same data rate and get a better better looking image. 
Yeah. Just because you'd be taught, because then you're making these qualitative decisions across the entire frame, which you're going to toss instead of, you know, across any two, you know, because a, a H264 encoder can be smart enough to know, like, that's hair. We actually need some bits here. And this is green, just, you know, blank nothing. Let's toss, you know, like, it'd be perfect for a green screen. Right. Because you have all that space that you just toss everything and then spend all your time worrying about the you know the edge. Yeah. Eh. My camera's gonna do it that way. All right. We'll, if we'll I've learned anything from Jim, <laughs> that starting a camera company is a worthwhile, profitable, and easy venture. Uh, I agree. Um, yeah, and you know, I think one one thing to note with this HPX two fifty, and I think it'll be interesting to see as it gets out into the world. Um, you know, it's a, it's a third inch sensor, so it's a, a pretty small sensor. Um, and it's their, their three MOS technology, their three CCD setup or three CMOS setup. Um, it'll be interesting to see who adopts it. If it actually sees much adoption again, I think, you know, people who are doing serious chroma work, it, it'll probably be cheap enough that there won't be a reason not to use something like this, but this is the type of camera that five years ago would have gotten the indie types really excited. But, um, you know, the, the feedback I've seen so far on this has been, you know, eh, boring, you know, I'll stick to my, uh, you know, next DSLR, whatever that may be. There's a lot of them right on the horizon right now. Um, so. Yeah. It's interesting how, how little these, I don't know, people seem to be, I mean, they, they find sort of recognizing these incremental things as the incremental things they are. There's not as much excitement about each one of these new. Right. I mean, I think these products, because the industry has matured so much, these products find their niches or have built in niches, but you can't set the world on fire the same way you could back with a DVX 100. Yeah. Um, because you know, the people who are so excited about that have so many great options as we talked about and are off, you know, making movies or talking about making movies as soon as they get a few more pixels. Right. So. So yeah, what else happened this week? Uh, Avid. Oh yeah. There's a new Avid. There is a new Avid. Well, there's. Well, we rumor of a new Avid. What we talked about a while ago was an Avid event where they had a sneak peek of of a future Avid, and now it's being actually talked about as Avid Six, and has some more concrete details associated with it. So a lot of this is. And we'll link to this article, um, which was something that Avid accidentally leaked out. Um, <laughs> right after their marketing department proofed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and most of this is a rehash, but there's you know some interesting things in here that, that caught my eye. What about you? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that really... St- then I really notice. I mean, you know, there's all the stuff. It's going to be 64-bit, and it's going to be format agnostic, and all the stuff everybody you know claims every time now but the one thing that i thought which was was kind of cool which i've always thought apple was going to be first to is the what are they calling it the avid marketplace i think yeah avid marketplace so it's going to be an in-app purchase system for plugins and uh hardware which i guess is less (laughs) um and uh, stock footage. So stock footage, I, don't, I mean, that, I guess, makes sense for them. But, I mean, the idea that, as a, you know, half of what, 
you know, these people, these vendors are competing. So they're competing for the customers, but they're also competing for developers at this point. I mean, you want, you look at uh, Adobe's purchase of Wes from Automatic Duck, how they hired him. I mean, you're trying to build an ecosystem and the way you build an ecosystem and, you know, a bunch of workflows is you get a bunch of third-party developers to start supporting your platform. And, you know, I thought this was a really smart, I mean, in the same way that the the App Store on Mac and iOS really encourages developers to develop something because it gets rid of all of the, you know, traditionally developers don't like marketing and sales and especially you know one guy shops and you know there's a huge tradition in in the video sphere of people writing apps for themselves or for their productions or for their you know you look at most of the the plugin vendors out there started as a production shop mm-hmm. of one kind or another i mean people like red giant and how they used to be part of the orphanage and you know it's a tool it's a tool chain that you develop in house for your own use and then push out you know and a lot of there are a lot of tools that never make that jump from an in-house tool into something commercial and i i you know my assumption is that for a lot of people it's just the sort of hassle right the the momentum of you need to up. get that initial yeah, because I mean, having having done it a few times now, the difference between having an app that's ready to ship and having an app that's ready to sell is so different. I yeah. mean, and it's it's just demoralizing that last bit because you're like, ah, oh, I'm done. You know, I've shown it to people. Everyone's really excited. All you do is take their money. Okay, so I need a website, and then two weeks later, like, okay, so I got a website. All you do is take the money. Oh, I need a store. Okay. Oh, PayPal sucks, and they're gonna steal half my money. Um, oh, I just need to set up with a bank. Oh, I need to be incorporated. Okay. And then, you know, like, and then two years later, you're like, ah, fuck it. Yeah. And so this, I mean, this seems like great. I mean, this is one of the things I thought was most exciting going on in the Final Cut realm for a while has been, um, what are they called? Noise? Noise effects? Is that right? Uh, yeah, the guys I know who make mean, the, yeah. they got the little like factory. Yeah, logo Fox factory. Yeah, where you can basically make. I think they're just Quartz Composer. I'm not sure they support any other backends right now. But you can use them as sort of a shell to sell your plugins, and they handle the marketplace and they handle support and everything else. And, you know, I don't know, you know, they haven't said a lot about where this Avid Marketplace is going, but... Well, I think one of the most exciting parts of it is really the, this idea that you can pull in stock footage. Uh, again, it'll depend a lot on how well this is done and how well it's implemented in software, but you can imagine, you know, if if Apple really wanted to do a feature like this, uh, you know, how nice it could be with sort of, you know, easy previewing and then one click, it bounces something into your bin and you, know, you can start cutting with it. Um, I think this could be really cool. And one of the cool things they're doing is that you can pull in um, proxies essentially and do your edit and you don't have to pay until you actually need the full res for your, your master. Oh, they're doing that? Yeah. Uh, oh, that's brilliant. And so, you, yeah, you don't have to commit to things. You can, you know, do your offline, 
you know, get approval, let the director, the producer change their mind a few times and not be paying every time that, you know, someone changes their mind and then only pay for the shot that actually gets used or the sound effect that actually gets used or whatever. Oh, this is brilliant, especially because it's delivered over the web. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Again, again, having done like on... those discovery, like just wall to wall Corbis crap. Yeah. Things are Getty. Ugh. This sounds so nice. It's definitely going to depend on how well they implement it, though, because it could be, I mean, you know, it could be death to all the other stock footage people, or it could just be something that no one ever actually uses because it's too clunky. And, and with Avid, things can go either way. Yeah. Um, but I love the idea. Yeah, as I say, I you know, I I would love to see it done really well, if not by them, by someone. Um, the only other thing I thought that was semi-interesting in, in this document is just how much they mentioned ProRes um, and support for encoding ProRes and decoding ProRes and, you know, really encouraging people to make the switch, but also to work in a workflow that, you know, crosses between platforms. Um, and I think that's, you know, obviously Media Composer 6 in general is all about Avid becoming more open. Um, and so. Right. I mean, they're still just doing this through their, through AMA, right? Right. So you still it's they're still reliant on Apple for the ProRes right. encoder and decoder components. Right. Um the other thing I guess the the last thing I wanted to mention um that I think is another cool feature. They've had Avid's had script sync for a while. Uh, oh, and have you ever seen a demo of that? Yeah. Oh, it's so nice. Have you ever seen it used in real life? No. Well, no, it's actually, it's really, I mean, again, for scripted product projects, it's pretty awesome. Um, and it, it, there's, there's been this whole war, which I don't think we've talked about, about with licensing around the technology that powers this with Nexidia and they've like pulled products from other platforms. I don't know. There's been all kinds of politics and, you know, sounds like some deals that were pretty sketchy. So, um, script sync, I don't think is actually part of media composer anymore as a shipped feature. It's something you pay extra for. No, it's a, it's an add on. Yeah. Yeah. Both um, of their things, script sync and, uh, the phonetic search are both. Right. And yeah, I thought that was the, the phrase find is a technology I haven't used. Um, and I was sort of surprised that this didn't show up in final cut X and I, I imagine it will at some point, um, given Avid's or Apple's current push in, in speech recognition, but this idea that you've got a searchable you know, index of all of your footage based on what was spoken with phonetic indexing. Um, I can see that being very useful. So, yeah. Although Apple's speech recognition technology is based on Nuance, right? And Nuance doesn't have a locally. They don't do all of their stuff is in the cloud, isn't it? No, I mean all, all of their desktop software, like Dragon and whatnot, are all local. I suppose that's true. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I don't think we know for a fact that it's Nuance on Siri. I think it's just the assumption because everyone uses Nuance for that kind of recognition. Well, because they have that partnership. But that was never, I don't think, actually, that that was all rumor as well. (laughs) So, I don't know. Did you want to talk about anything like uh, we were talking about software testing and other things? Oh like yeah, that? you were gonna. We were gonna have you uh, talk about this. Yeah. So you, one of the first things you did when you started full time. So years ago, we put in place a system to test our 
copies to test the you know pre-releases of Cliprap before we release them. And uh, you've done a lot of work in the last couple of months upgrading that. Yeah, while well, starting over, basically. Um, <laughs> it's the best the, way to the upgrade. Old, the old system never really worked. But the idea is, you know, with a product like Cliprap, um, there's a lot of different ways to test software, and there's a lot of different methodologies and mindsets. You know, you can do test-driven development where you only write code against tests that you've created. Um, you, with something like a video application, there, there's a lot of different factors that you need to take into account. So with something like Cliprap, um, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of cameras out there, each with, you know, up to a dozen different modes and, you know, maybe a few different flavors of that camera for different markets and maybe a few different firmwares. So there's a lot of potential inputs. Um, there's a lot of potential outputs. You know, Cliprap supports a lot of different formats and it works across, you know, four different major versions of OS X, two different hardware architectures. Um, and power pc and intel right and and a lot of different configurations in terms of final cut 6 final cut 7 final cut 5 final cut x avid premiere right uh, for us it's not good enough that the file plays right so we're not we're not the val you know a valid file isn't a file that we say is valid it's a file that plays back in final cut and plays back in avid and plays back in Right. And so the issue, at least from my perspective, is that, you know, with something like test-driven development, it gets kind of tricky with an app like Cliprap where we hand off some of the processing to system-level things, um, like QuickTime. And so it's difficult to have, you know, like test-driven development is really, really awesome if you're developing like a complicated, you know, business intelligence Perl application where you've got lots of different like functions and you can write tests that, you know, call that function with all the possible inputs and check against all the known outputs. Right. Um, so let's, let's define this test driven development. Sure. Uh, for, for most definitions of test driven development, um, what most people mean when they're talking about it is it's a style of code writing where either before or after you write, any discrete piece of code, any piece of code that takes an input and delivers an output in a deterministic way. So one input gives you the same output every time. You write a test for every permutation of input to make sure that they write output. So basically you're trying to cover every possible decision your code can make with a test that exercises it, right. for lack of a better word. So, so if you you know if you write something, say you've got a simple function in your program that just adds two numbers together. So it does x plus y equals z. What you do is you write a series of tests that say is x plus y. You know if x is one and y is one, does z equal two? And if not, you fail the test. And so, you know, in the in the really draconian, you know, uh, religions of test-driven development, you you write the test first, and so you write a series of failing tests, and then and then write your code. The only code you write is code that makes tests go from failing to passing. 
Right. And, and this is uh, very popular in, in enterprise um, where tests will actually be created by a separate team and hand it off to another group. And, you know, basically once all the tests pass, the application's done. Right. Um, and I, you know, uh, what, what are your feelings about test driven development like that? I, so I, I understand the, the, the impulse for it. It makes, it makes great sense. I mean, developers like, I think, to a man, developers like... Or a woman. Or a woman. Like finite solvable problems. And so turning a, you know, a large project into a series of finite solvable problems you know, makes, makes each one of your operations atomic. Right. So it means that any one developer can be replaced with any other developer at any time. I mean, from a management standpoint, test-driven development is what makes outsourcing all of your development engineering to another country. Right. That doesn't speak the language you speak, or doesn't you know, or doesn't sleep at the same time that you do. I mean, it's become it's been instrumental in that. And for you know, again, for enterprisey type things that are, are you know not the sort of coding that either of us have ever really worked on. But if you you can imagine like you know doing doing a system for a bank or something, um, obviously there's there's severe consequences to you know a function that returns the wrong value, um, and so you want it to be well tested, and you know you can front load a lot of that testing resources, so you can be very extensive in terms of your testing. Um, to be confident that you're hitting, you know, all of your potential fail cases. I, I but it mean, doesn't work for an app like ClipRap. And I also feel like it, I mean, and, and just getting back to what you've said about outsourcing and everything else, I feel like it encourages really bad code a lot of the time as well, because people end up writing special cases to, you know, pass this test and to pass this test or to pass this, you know, input and this input. Um, and so you sort of end up with, not very elegant code because it wasn't thought through from the beginning in terms of what's the right way to do this. It's what's the right way to pass this test and move on to the next thing. Um, right. It Well, yeah. I mean, in the same way that it, it, the same advantage it has that it makes your task at hand into a series of small atomic tasks, it also, it has the, the same disadvantage is that it takes the thing that you're trying to make, you know, you everything turns into a, a Chuck Close painting, where you're not painting someone's face, you're painting, you know, this inch by inch right. grid, and then you move on to the next one, and then you move on to the next one. You know, there's no test to say, does this all make sense as a, you know, right. as this two thousand lines of code? This, yeah. yeah, is this the easy way to do it? You know, there's no, there's no way to test for that. Which you know, I understand why you don't want to demand that of right. Well, and again, for a lot of a lot of things, yeah, you know, you can these are the types of apps that you throw more hardware at and you're not worried about efficiency and whatever else you're worried about getting things done and being able to use the code to make money or whatever else that right you know, in terms of the places where test driven development is is very popular and so i guess what so what we do is something different right and and it's a you know a mix of different things but one of the issues is that with ClipRap, you know, we want to make sure that we're we're getting consistent output for an, a given set of input, um, and we want to be able to test 
a broad range of files. And so as we're developing, obviously, you know, we'd make a change and compile it and, and drop in a file and, oh, it's, you know, working or it's not working or whatever. But along the way, we also want to be doing snapshots over this, this wide range of cameras that are out there. And so what we've been doing for a few years is collecting a, a library of test clips as new cameras hit the market or as we run into cameras that are weird or different. Um, or anytime a user submits a bug and gives us a file, we keep that file and, and categorize it um, right. according to, you know, what type of camera it came from and what, what format what it was in. And, we had at the time and how we fixed it, things like that. Right. And so, you know, what we're able to do now and what this test suite does um, is we can say, please take all of these files, these, you know, hundreds of files and run them through Cl ClipRap and convert them all to DNX HD or convert them all to every format you support. Um, and you know, do as best you can to analyze the output, and and so by doing that and comparing against a known good baseline, and so when we do a a release, you know, once we verify the release, we sort of run through and make the output of that release the baseline, and then as we're testing the next version, we can compare and say, oh, are we are we breaking something? Are we intentionally breaking that? Um, right. Has or, our code changed anything about the resulting files? Right. And it also and means then, then we can take a look at the changes that have occurred and decide whether or not they're good changes or not. Right. And and the test suite we've done is a client server sort of thing. And so um, we're able to actually run it across multiple machines and compare results between machines as well, which is, is very useful um, because it means we can really quickly, you know, make sure we haven't broken things on PowerPC or something. Um, and so it's it's been a you know an interesting project to work on in terms of um, figuring out what that balancing point is in terms of you know what to test and what's right because one of the other nice things is that it's pretty quick at this point um, to run a you know a subset of cameras or to run a subset of samples and get a quick idea of where things are at and it's been so far as with the the current release we're working on which has a lot of sort of deep changes in the way files are written and, and other things. Um, it's been incredibly helpful to find issues that may never actually be issues where, you know, where we get files that play and they all seem to work fine, but we're able to say, oh, there's one byte that's different. Why is that different? Is that an intentional choice or is that a typo or something else? And it's, you know, forced us to go back and really make sure that every change is intentional, which in in the past, because we didn't have a way to look that deeply at files on a on, on a mass scale without going through manually, um, you know that might not have always happened. Right the 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 test of the test that we had to pass previous to now was that they worked in the in Final Cut or Avid or QuickTime. Whereas the test that we have to pass now is that they haven't changed right. at all. And so this is, I mean, to, to get back to the, our definition of things, this is a different in testing model, which you know, is also used in the industry called integration testing, where you take one or more big chunks of your code or you know, your entire workflow in general and test it against, you know, with a set of known inputs and a set of known outputs. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been great. It's yeah. definitely an improvement. Yeah, it's, uh, again, I find that it's actually made, it's made development easier in terms of um, feeling more confident in making big changes. 
um, because you know there's a lot of moving parts, and so you can start to feel a little more more confident that yeah, this this works. I'm you know I'm sure that it works for me, but you know I know it passed all these tests on all these different architectures as well, so I know that it it probably is going to work for other people as well. Right, and one of the issues we have is I mean most of the bugs that we fix at this point that that are originating from end users are you know th- here's this 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 new camera came out and we're getting a file that seems to have the wrong frame rate or seems to, you know, have the wrong color. Um, and as we dig into it, it's usually that it's not, it's not a simple like, oh, look, we're reading the color information wrong. It's, oh, I see why they think that they're encoding their color this way and we weren't before. Right. And so the change isn't a simple like fix the bug and re- recompile. It's changing the, you know, one one of the big advantages of ClipRep is how much it's doing in the background to determine the format of these files so that you don't have to. I mean, you know, one of the the overarching, you know, m- like design decisions of the app was we're not going to put checkboxes. Right. And for you to decide how this is, you know, what your file is that comes at the other end. You tell us what format you want and we give you the file in that format because based we, on the input. Right. We know better than you most of right. the time. And so, you know, where most of the bugs that, that users report are issues with some new camera, right, you know, documenting their format internally to that file in such a way that the decision that we make no longer is correct. And and the problem with fixing things like that is the decision that we're making isn't wrong. I mean it's wrong for that one file because we can see that, you know, the, the color is wrong in the resulting file or something. But it's it's made that decision based on a number of criteria that we've built up over the years. And so you can't just be like you can't just make changes to our internal engine until that file looks right because that changes the entire corpus of thousands and thousands of other cameras and files out there. Right. And so what's been great about this is you can you know you can really easily go in and make these changes and know what the effects are across, you know, all the supported cameras. So yeah, it's uh it's interesting, and, and ClipRap is really a, a great application for this kind of testing because almost all of the work in ClipRap is on this sort of processing side, and so it, it lends itself to automation very well. Um, you know, ClipRap obviously has a command line interface. If you if you don't know that, check the manual. It's Appendix B, I think, Appendix A. Um, and so that makes this sort of automation really great because there aren't a ton of buttons that need to be clicked in different combinations um, or, or things like that, which is the type of testing that, for example, Microsoft has to do with Microsoft Office. Um, you know, they, at least at one point, and we'll see if we can dig up this article, they had, you know, a room full of hundreds and hundreds of Mac minis that they would every night deploy the current build of Mac Office to, and then they had scripts that just ran around clicking all the buttons and doing all the possible operations to see if they really? could basically get the application to get hung up or to, to do something. Huh. It was this total brute force approach to, to testing the app. Which is, you know, the Microsoft way. Um, well, that's the test-driven development way. I mean, anytime you do these tests, the the point is to make the computer do as many possible tests as right. 
so yeah, that it's you don't have to. interesting to think about doing it at the UI level where you're actually like moving a cursor around and um, that's that's become a lot more popular recently. When, when you look at Apple's instruments, yeah, I suppose the new, the new debugging tool. One of the one of the big new features over the existing debugging tools before this came out was that you can now drive the UI. Right. Anywho. And so, yeah, it's been good. I mean, it's worth mentioning that the actual the the impetus for ClipRap, the original the original, you know, so when when ClipRap started as just an, you know, an HDV and M2T converter rewrapper, it was you know, people people started requesting it from me and the app already existed because it was a test chain internally for the demuxer we had written for Scopebox. So, I mean, the, 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 the beginnings of the app before it was even a commercial product was as a test suite for a lot of our code that's used in Scopebox. So that's the other nice advantage we get from this, this new test suite is more test coverage of the code that's used in all of our apps, not just in ClipRam. Right. Because everything from our custom QuickTime file writing code to all of our image transcoding, all of our audio transcoding, all of our um, MPEG transport stream demuxing, all of that is shared between the two apps. Right. Yes. And so it's nice to be able to, the more coverage, the better. I agree. So cool. So look for ClipRap to be even better in all future releases. Yes. But it's already pretty good, and you should buy a copy if you don't have it already. Or if you bought it from an OEM sales company out of Seattle. Yeah. We should talk about that sometime. All the people selling software nowadays who don't actually sell you real software. Yeah, definitely. It's a conversation for another day. Indeed. Um, So chatter. Yeah. You got something to chatter about? Well, I figured I'd just throw a shout out to uh, um, a book I'm reading right now, which is, of course, the Steve Jobs um, biography from Walter Isaacson, which if you haven't if you're on the fence about reading it, if you're not a real book person, um, I would highly recommend it both because it's a great book about Steve, but also Walter Isaacson writes some of the best biographies, um, for mainstream audience. Um, and I really, I really like the way he tells a story and I, and so far I'm about a third of the way through the book. Um, it's just, it's great. Um, learning a lot of new things and some surprising things. I'm just, just finished off, um, the initial ouster from Apple and, and it was much more um, violent and uh, tumultuous than I even imagined. And I knew it was pretty rough, but uh, it was much more extended and, and unpleasant than I thought. So, you know, it's fascinating stuff. Well worth a read. So tell me the truth. The first thing you did when you got it, did you check the index for your name? Uh, no. Oh. I didn't have any reason to think I would be in it. Oh, but you were at the iPhone announcement. I was. I should have published all of our names. I wasn't there. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm cooler than you. Uh, true. 
Did you check the index for mining? No. Because I'm in there. Yeah, totally. H232. Yeah, really? Yeah. How many pages are in that book? <laughs> but there's more than 232. There are, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right, in, right in that section on like uh, annoying guys who ask too many questions on mailing lists. Mm, could be. Mm. 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 So, yeah. What, do, what am I going to talk about this week? Oh, yeah. So I bought and I'm waiting for delivery on a 3D printer. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's going to be good. MakerBot. They make a, uh, they make the affordable. So I, I didn't mean to ask you, is there any relation between MakerBot and RepRap? Uh, they are both open source. I believe MakerBot is loosely based on it. Okay. I believe they share the same software, which was originally an Arduino thing. Um, but the hardware itself is different-ish. But they are related. And so the MakerBot lets you make objects out of plastic? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, basically a robot, robotic uh, glue gun, except it spits out um, either a, uh, it's PLA or I want to say acrylic, but it's not acrylic. Yeah, uh, ASB, ABS. So, two types of plastic. It heats it up and spits it out a little. It's almost like frosting. And it's three axis? Yes. Three-dimensional. And what's the size of objects it's produced? produced? Not very big. Um, I want to say like four inches. Cupcake size, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so relatively small. Uh, not the fastest thing. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's definitely the low end of things. I like the... You know, I've been doing a lot of research into the various technologies for printing lately, and it's um, there's no obvious winner. Um, this looks like it scales up better, whereas the other technologies, like um, you know, there's one that like spits glue into a bed of. Um, cellulose and there's ones like lasers melt a big pile of dust like either yeah, plastic or dust yeah. or um, aluminum dust or steel dust um, and all of those give you much better quality at the current moment because you got a laser mm -hmm. you can do little things um, the problem is they, they just are so much larger and the expendables bill is so much higher because you have to have, if you're making a an object with the bounding box is a foot, but you know whatever your your maximum print size is, say you can print something 12 inches wide, then you have to have enough of that medium to fill a 12 by 12 by 12 box. Right. And so you're constantly moving like just large quantities of dust around it's like it's like if a laser printer needed pounds of toner 
and the toner wasn't in these nice little things that never open. It's just like, you know, there's, it's not an office technology. You just have piles of dust that you need to lay. And then when you're done, you have to like shake it out of the dust and then airbrush it off. There's a bunch of technologies that print some sort of medium inside of another. So they put down like a wax layer and then they dump like a resin into it that cures. Mm -hmm. And so you, I mean, one of them was like, prints really nice looking pieces, but you have to, when you're done, you put the piece into an oven to melt off the wax. And then you take the piece out and you put it into a ultrasonic cleaner full of hot oil. Mm to melt off the last bit of the wax and then you put it in a dishwasher to wash off the ultrasonic oil and it's like <laughs> oh god really that is not rapid prototype i mean you right. could fedex me the damn thing faster <laughs> than you could print it and clean it so i don't know i mean it's an interesting technology i'm kind of curious to see i'm guessing we're kind of at the uh you know, I think 3D printing is about at the stage where computers were back when they had eight lights on the front and eight switches, and yeah. that's how you programmed them. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. I'm curious to to see where things really are at. And do you have an idea for the first thing you want to uh, rapidly assemble? I would assume it's going to be a stand for bunny. I suppose so. Or Stephen Colbert's head. <laughs> I don't know. Or a cube. Yeah. <laughs> we shall see how easy it is to import models into this <laughs> software. It might yeah. just be a big cube. All right. But well, yeah. I, w- I will be eager to see it and uh, to get some feedback on how it's working, and I will be eager for my uh, my present. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. You have to send me a 3D scan of your head. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. We're done. Next week, we'll do this again. We'll do our best.